Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Dwayne Boyce received his academic training in psychology, philosophy, and the clinical treatment of families. He received a PhD from Brigham Young University and conducted his postdoctoral study in developmental psychology at Harvard University. He was a member of the Moral Studies Group at Brigham Young University and served on the faculty there before becoming vice president of a steel company headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. He is a founding partner of the Arbinger Institute, a worldwide management consulting and educational firm, and is the co-author of four books. He has published he has published academic essays on scriptural topics in BYU studies, The Farms Review, Religious Educator, and the Journal of Book of Mormon and Other Restoration Scripture. He is the author of the recently published book, Even Unto Bloodshed, A Latter-day Saint Perspective on War. Among other callings, he has served as bishop and stake president. He is the author of an article in The Interpreter entitled Sustaining the Brethren, and that is the article that we are here to talk with Dwayne about. So thank you very much, Dwayne, for coming on uh, Skype with us and having this, this interview. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Nick. So in your article, you call sustaining the brethren a vital topic. What about sustaining the brethren Brethren is, is vital? I think, I think there are two reasons, uh, two fundamental reasons it's vital. I think the first one goes like this. Uh, the Lord himself said that whosoever receiveth me receiveth those, the first presidency whom I have sent. That's that's a statement in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 112. And here the Lord tells us that receiving him entails that we receive the first presidency. And so that's one sense of this. Sustaining the brethren seems to me vital because the Lord himself tells us that there's no receiving him without receiving them. Gotcha. Uh, now, a deeper way to put that is to say that, uh, look, it seems to me as Latter-day Saints or as disciples generally, we love the Lord and and we develop his heart, and we love what he loves. And uh, nothing is clearer to me than the fact that he loves the brethren. And if I'm like him, I'll love the brethren too. And so just this unity with the Lord seems to me to be key, a key reason why, why it's vital. I, I, and then a second reason uh, would just be this. We live, I would say we live in a fallen world. We all recognize that. And it's unimaginable to me that we can suppose that the solution to the problems in this fallen world will come from fallen beings, come from ourselves. After all, we're the ones who create the problems. What's the likelihood we'll come up with the solutions to them? And so, to me, the brethren are so critical because they truly represent the Lord, and they speak by the power of the Spirit, and they really do teach uh, the answers to the world's problems. And uh, that is such a magnificent blessing of the gospel to have prophets. And uh, otherwise, it's just easy to be misled and to do things that are really foolish. But we have prophets that prevent that. So for me, that's a second reason, I would say, why why it's vital. Okay. Well, I know that there's a lot of people that will hold to the opinion, perhaps you could categorize it as a critical opinion, that due to their fallibility as, as prophets, as human beings, uh, that they that they aren't equal to Christ, that they are somehow at a lower level. And therefore, I'm curious when you say that they, you can't really separate the two, there are those that will hold to that position. How would you respond to that type of uh, position? Well, look, I think there, maybe the way to think of that is that there are 
two separate issues here. One is um, to embrace the brethren as representatives of the Lord and to love and sustain them as those who represent the Lord, which is the attitude he has toward them. He loves and sustains them. And what he says is, uh, if you receive me, you receive them. And I think what that means is sort of spiritually, attitudinally, we have an attitude of respect and love and loyalty to his servants. And, and that's what it means to have respect and loyalty toward him. So that's one thing. The second thing has to do with how directly they speak for him. And, you know, there's so much to say about that. And everything in my article is about all of the considerations that go into deciding what it means to sustain the brethren. But one of them certainly is this. Uh, the brethren have spoken so repeatedly and forcefully about the power of the Spirit in their councils. And, and when the brethren speak as a council, uh, it has the virtue of a council of prophets, seers, and revelators counseling together, combined with the Spirit of the Lord guiding them. And I would say this, that, and maybe we'll come to it more later if you have more to ask about it, but I would say that um, on less important issues, the Lord probably doesn't control much. There are a lot of acceptable alternatives on many matters. After all, the first presidency, for example, is involved in many, many things, but they're not all of equal importance. And on things that aren't that important, uh, you know, from an eternal standpoint, I'm sure the Lord leaves lots of things to their judgment. And they themselves might look back later and say, uh, you know, a better, a better course might have been something different. But but those are on things that aren't of... of uh, great significance. On things sure. that are of great significance, I think the Lord supplies tight control, tight control on uh, the decisions they make, the direction they give, because it's his church. Yeah. And I think he controls it very closely on the matters that are of, the mo of most importance. Okay, That's certainly what they bear witness to. And you know, well, anyway, you might have follow-up questions, but I, I, there's a lot in the paper about that. Sure. And we do want people to take the time to, to read this, of course, and we'll have a link to that article at the posting for this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. Now, you do say, though, that this, this idea of sustaining the brethren is, is part of making and keeping sacred covenants within the church. Is, is there a distinction between sustaining the brethren and sustaining our local leaders as it relates to the covenants that we make? Hmm. You know, I'd like to couch this in a broader context because... Well, I think it belongs in a broader context. I think it goes like this. As, as saints, as disciples of Christ, I think it's part of our covenants to love and respect and be generous toward everyone, to not have a, a, a complaining or critical spirit toward anyone. We love our brothers and sisters in our stake, our wards. We're, we don't take a complaining spirit toward them. That That's a, a violation of our discipleship to love one another. So I think Part of our covenant is just that. We, we love and we don't criticize anybody. We're not judgmental. So in one sense, when you think about local leaders or even general leaders, in one sense, they are you know, a subset of all our brothers and sisters, and we don't take a complaining or critical spirit toward them either. I think it's part of our covenant toward, a, toward each other as brothers and sisters. I, I, really, I think it goes like this. If I have a complaining and critical attitude, that's me. That's not because of somebody else. That's because of something I'm doing. Now, I can't say that's true of everybody else. The only experience I really know is my own. 
But I don't trust myself if I'm feeling complaining. I, I take that as a sign there's something probably wrong with me. Hmm. Okay. So I guess with this whole article, again, is talking about the sustaining of the brethren. And, and you start out with this kind of doctrinal foundation where you talk about it being attached to covenants and things like that. And when I think about that, I also think that when we raise our arm to the square, when we re-sustain these same people over and over again at General Conference and so, so on, that that's sort of a covenant renewal, almost sacramental in that regard. Is that, is that an accurate or fair assumption on how this all plays out, maybe even doctrinally? Or, Well, look, it's the way I look at it. It's, it's the way I look at it. And for me, it goes back to something I said earlier. Look, to, to be one with the Lord, to be united with him, to love him, truly is to love what he loves. And when I think of my brothers and sisters in the gospel, he loves them. Who am I? to take a, a complaining or critical spirit toward them. And so part of the, the covenant is to love everybody. And, and then it, of course, applies to leaders at both the local and general level. Uh, I think it is covenantal. Uh, it's, a, it's a part of being one with the Lord and, and loving what he loves. Yeah. He loves the saints that sit next to me. He loves my bishopric. He loves the first presidency and the 12. Why wouldn't I? All right. So, so again, we're talking about paradigms and things like that as, in approaching this issue. And your article sets, sets up an interesting paradigm where you discuss the differences between God's character and humankind's character and the vast differences that at least currently rest between the two. So maybe you could lay out the foundation for the rest of our discussion on sustaining the brethren with, the, with respect to those two different uh, characters. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's such a big difference between mortals and, and divine beings like Heavenly Father. And, you know, scriptural figures emphasize that. I mean, you have King Benjamin, Jacob, Moses, Enoch. I mean, we're familiar with all those scriptures where they draw such a contrast between what we know and what what the Father knows, what the Lord knows. And, and that gap is really too large, you know, for words, really. But I, I, I think it helps to think about it this way a little bit. Let's imagine... If you, if you take the field of physics, for example, there are more than 150 journals, professional journals, just in the field of physics. And so just, um, just do this little thought experiment. If you imagine that each journal publishes 10 issues a year and that each issue has 100 pages, that's 150,000 pages in, in a single year, just in the field of physics. Now, if you take biology, more than 130 academic professional journals published – Imagine they, the same thing, you know, 10 issues a year to make the math simple, 100 issues, uh, 100 pages per issue. That's 130,000 pages in one year. So if you just take physics and biology, that's 280,000 pages related to new academic information every year, every year. Now, I ask myself this question. Is there a single person on earth who could digest all that information in one year? 280,000 pages worth? And the answer is no. There's not one person who could do that. Um, and then I ask this question. Is there one thing in all of those 280,000 pages that teaches God anything? And the answer is no. So for me, it's one way to, to underscore this situation, you know, the reality of the difference between us. You take the situation, a human can't even come close to assimilating all the information in physics and biology that's published in a single year. 
And yet in all that mass of information that we can't assimilate, there's not one thing that teaches God anything. And that's only two disciplines, physics and biology. If we looked at every academic discipline, the answers would be the same, except the gap would be wider, right? So for me, even though this analogy isn't perfect, this way of looking at it isn't perfect, it's still close enough to make the general point that compared to the Lord, none of us knows anything. And that's important to have in mind. But, and you think about, you know, I've been talking here in terms of one person, but even as an aggregate, the human race I mean, we don't know how to travel through solid surfaces. We don't know how to hover in the air. We don't know how to walk on water. We don't know how to heal illness instantly. We don't know how to travel through space instantaneously. We don't know how to do any of those things. No one knows. And yet celestial beings do those things routinely. And all of this it still doesn't say anything about celestial life and eternal progression where Heavenly Father knows all of that and we know virtually nothing. Mm. So for me, when I look at all this, even if you put the scriptures aside, you know, those particular passages about the gap between our knowledge and his, even if you look at it this way, it's just obvious. There's no comparison, whatever, between what we mortals know and what God knows. And we just know nothing. And so it seems to me that any discussion about what it means to obey God, to obey his servants, has to begin with the recognition that, uh, that we just don't know anything, and, and we should uh, acknowledge that. It's why, by the way, I quote in the paper that Yiddish proverb, right, uh, if God lived on earth, people would break his windows. Well, that's not a fault of God that we would break his windows. It's because we can't uh, fathom what he fathoms and why he makes the decisions he makes. And so he routinely disappoints us. But that's not a fault in him. That's a fault in us. Mm. And I just think that's a fundamental uh, acknowledgement that, that's critical to make. Does that and, make and sense? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that co- goes along with that, though, is, is yet we are beings that have been given the ability to have reason to use our minds. In fact, we're encouraged to gain intelligence and things like that. So the things that you're talking about as far as making this recognition between God and man as far as our intelligence level, our knowledge level, it almost borders on the idea of what some people may call the the sheep mentality. We should just, just do what we're told because we're so, you know, God is smarter, therefore let's just do what they say. And, and I don't think that's what you're saying, but I can see how that proposition would be the conclusion some may come to. So how then do you, you counter that idea of just surrendering completely, but yet we are encouraged to have reason and, and to apply that in making decisions? Yeah, okay, it's a great question. Um, and look, the way... Uh I would just start here by saying the way that's put about being sheep and not thinking and all that. Really, when it's put that way, it's a complete straw man, isn't it? And in, in the paper, I emphasize a lot about being spiritually mature disciples of Christ. And, you know, that makes me think of, you know, there are really three things to emphasize about that, about being spiritually mature disciples and followers of the Lord and his servants. So the first one for me is, that we truly can have a, a powerful spiritual witness of the brethren. Um, that's why I quote President Lee in there about the importance of being converted and having the spirit rest in our hearts like fire regarding the calling of the brethren. And 
my, what I would like to say is that we can have a testimony of the brethren and of their calling, just like we have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And that's critical for me uh, to know that we can have that kind of witness of them. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is we can have a spiritual witness of particular decisions the brethren make. And in the paper, I quote Marion G. Romney on that, encouraging that to pay whatever price it takes spiritually to receive a witness of the Spirit uh, regarding any particular decision that, uh, that we don't get, right, that we, we don't understand. We have uh, the right to go to the Lord if we're living right and, and have him tell us that it's right. So there's nothing mindless in my view or casual or lazy or complacent about following the brethren when we can have a witness of their authority to begin with and when we can receive a witness regarding you know, their decisions on top of that. And that really is mature discipleship. It's not lazy or complacent or casual. But, there, but there's a third point, too, that is just critical when this kind of topic comes up about uh, being a spiritually mature follower. And that is there is such abundant evidence, both implicit and explicit in the scriptures, that it's the Lord's practice to give less explanation than we want. That's how he has dealt with his people in all ages, really. I mean, Abraham and Noah were expected to follow the, Lord, the Lord's direction. You know, but they didn't know the whys or the whens. And, you know, the same is true of Lehi, and Nephi, Mormon, Joseph Smith. I mean, name them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, Ether chapter 12 are chapters devoted to uh, followers of God who followed the Lord without knowing the when or the why necessarily. But they did. And so uh, I guess I would put it this way. The, Lord, uh, the Lord's practice is to require us to respond to the Spirit in the absence of all the information we might like. That's his practice. And that's a test of our humility and our reliance on the Spirit. To go another way where the, where the Lord would be giving us answers and reasons and timelines for everything he does would be to appeal to our intellects. But it's not what he does mainly. He appeals to, to our spiritual responsiveness. And we grow in our spiritual responsiveness. And so we can know that something is right, even though we don't know why or how it will play out. We can still know that it's right. And the Lord's practice is to require us to, to go for it uh, in that kind of setting. And he's just done it over and over again. So for me, there's just nothing mindless at all about following the divine direction of the brethren uh, it seems to me precisely what the scriptures teach that the Lord requires all the time. And it's, uh, it's what spiritually mature people expect, it seems to me. Okay. Now, one of the other things that has, has kind of come up recently, and I think that part of your article addresses, or at least was the spirit in which I think it was uh, delivered, was to address some of the waves of discord or disagreement, maybe even discontent, that seem to crash against the church at different times and in slightly different ways. And one of the ones that I've observed over the past few years is this idea that's at least clothed in the, no in the notion that the general church membership has a role or place to advocate for systemic change to either doctrines or practices, uh, more specifically with practices within the church. Um, and, and that somehow this is a perspective that allows a person to also remain faithful. So how do you reconcile or can you reconcile the concepts that you present in your article on sustaining the brethren 
can can one be an advocate for systemic change and sustain the brethren at the same time? Well, okay. I know that's kind of a thick question. It is. I, I think there are two dimensions, two major dimensions to answering it. And so if you'll just be yeah, patient. give it to us. No, kind of, go kind for of walk. it. There t- I think there are two major dimensions as I think about that question. Um, the first one really is how important the matter is. Uh, if it's a matter of uh, extreme importance, then I think, I think we begin with a certain set of acknowledgments regarding the brethren. Uh, for example, I think it's important to acknowledge that the First Presidency and the Twelve have been called by the Lord to their positions. I mean, that's fundamental. They've been ordained. They've been given the highest spiritual authority on earth. They're special witnesses of the Lord, and they receive revelation from him. All these are fundamental. If I don't know any of those things, if I don't know that, then, then there's no place to begin. These are the beginning points. And uh, they really are called, and they have the spiritual authority and spiritual endowment. In, in addition to that, I mean, think about it. I mean, they meet with each other weekly at a minimum, and they work feverishly when they're not meeting with each other they're working feverishly as individuals in other places to to do what's right for the kingdom so here you have 15 prophets seers and revelators interacting with each other all the time they have in my view it goes like i mean really i think about it this way they have more authority they possess more spiritual power they work immensely harder i would say and they care far more deeply than than we realize and when I think of all that, I, I, I wonder what opinion I would have to have of myself if I thought I was going to teach them anything of importance about what the Lord really wants for his kingdom. Um, uh, to, to me, the odds are way against it. Uh, okay. So that's one thing. The second thing, I, I think on less important matters, you know, things at the edge, you know, that aren't critical but where they're making decisions all the time. I think that, that can be a different story. I'll, I'll just tell you uh, my experience with this. When I was a stake president, I, uh, I actually felt the handbook was missing a certain type of policy that would help leaders in working with members. And, and I felt comfortable writing a letter uh, to the president of the 12 and uh, making this suggestion and my reasons for it. And I felt completely comfortable doing that. It, was, it wasn't a matter that was fundamental to the kingdom, but it was a matter that it, it was administrative in nature. And, and I felt that the brethren would, would like a perspective from someone in the trenches. And uh, so I made that recommendation. In another case, I, oh, and by the way, to, that policy, I guess I could, could mention that policy appeared in the next handbook. Hmm. Now, whether other people made the same recommendation or not, I don't know, but I certainly did. And I felt as a stake president, completely comfortable doing that, and and the, the change appeared. You feel comfortable telling us what it is? I got my curiosity up now. Oh no. <laughs> no. Okay. That's I also also there. Uh, I'll give you another example from my own life. I uh, also when I was a stake president, Elder Holland gave a talk in conference, and um, given what I just had a brainstorm uh, of an idea, and I sent it to him in a letter about sacrament meetings, about, you know, a, a bit of a change in sacrament meetings. But, uh, but again, that wasn't fundamental. It was just administrative. And, of course, I said to him, there's no reason to ever reply to me. I'm just, I just had this brainstorm, and, you know, here it is for what it's worth. And so it seems to me that at the edges, 
on matters that aren't critical or fundamental, I think it's acceptable to share recommendations here and there. And, and anybody in the leadership position would be happy uh, to receive them. But, but there's a difference between those and, on matter, and matters that are fundamental. And I can see no appropriateness in that kind of thing at all. I think action of that sort, you know, if I want to make a recommendation to the brethren on something of central importance to the gospel and the operation of the church and so on, I think if I do that, I think it exhibits a, a massive underappreciation of the brethren. And I got to say an equally massive overappreciation of myself hmm. and I wouldn't do it. So having said that, that brings me to the second dimension because even if I, let's think about it this way. Even if I want to make a recommendation of some sort, there's really a question of propriety and honoring the Lord and his servants. And, um, I think at least in my case, I had a couple of thoughts to share and I shared them, but I shared them privately I didn't post them on a blog saying, I think the church should do this. I didn't write a letter to the editor or give a speech saying, I think the church should do this. I didn't do that. I think it would have been wrong to do it. I think it's disrespectful of those who've been put in positions of authority. And so I, I, I did it privately, and I think that's the right and courteous and respectful way. And by the way, it's one of the reasons I included the story about Elder Oaks and President McKay in the paper. Hmm. Where, and I invite people to read that because, for me, it's a perfect example of a member of the church having a point of view that looked like it was in opposition to something that the prophet himself had said. And the way Elder Oaks, he wasn't elder at the time, the way Dallin Oaks handled that, to me, was a model of what it means to, to have a thought and... Uh, and how to handle that. And that, that's why that's in there. I, I think it's the right way. Excellent. Yeah, again, we want to encourage people to go read the article because there's a lot of great stuff that we're not going to touch on. But one of the things that I did want to give is a quote from Elder Dallin H. Oaks uh, that you put in there that I love. Uh, it's an interesting perspective because critics of this idea of sustaining the brethren at all, or even those who find it difficult to place their faith in the hands of, of men, of leaders— Forget that we're all operating sometimes in moral capacity. And the quote reads, Revelations from God are not constant. We believe in continuing revelation, not continuous revelation. We are often left to work out problems without the dictation, uh, dictation or specific direction of the Spirit. That is part of the experience we must have in mortality. Fortunately, we are never out of our Savior's sight, and if our judgment leads us into actions beyond the limits of what is permissible, and if we are listening, the Lord will restrain us by the promptings of His Spirit. So how does this quote lay a solid foundation for sustaining the brethren while also giving room for what people will you know, address as their mortal fallibility? Yeah. Look, when he gave that statement, he was talking about... Uh you know, individual members of the church. But I think it applies, and I, this is what I say in the article, I think it applies also to the presiding councils of the church. And this is really related to, to what I said earlier. You know, the First Presidency <laughs> is involved in a massive number of issues, but they aren't close to being of equal importance. And I think on many issues, the Lord can be happy with many alternatives. And in 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 that kind of a broad range of options, I think the Lord just lets them operate according to their judgment. And, uh, and as long as they don't cross a line that the Lord wouldn't want them to cross, then they're free to pick 
among those acceptable options, and I think that's how it works. But if you were to if you were to cross the line, this is just the way it happens in our individual lives too. If we cross a line of what the Lord would permit or want, then we feel a no, a, a spiritual no, that restrains us from doing that, and then we just back up and adjust, and then we're back among the acceptable alternatives, and He lets us work. So I think on. On a wide range of issues, it's like that. And I guess anybody from the outside could look in and say, you know, and second guess a decision, you know, that falls in that category. I personally wouldn't do that. My way of looking at it is, even on issues like that, if uh, the Lord had wanted me to be the one making those decisions, he would have found a way to call me. Gotcha. And he hasn't. And so who am I to be shouting from the sidelines, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. I can't think of anything more disrespectful, and I, I wouldn't do it. So that's that category. But then, as I said earlier, on the most important issues, I think the boundaries are narrow, and uh, the Lord control ex- exercises tight spiritual control on the most important issues. And, um, and there, as President Packer said, when the first presidency speaks, we can safely accept their word. Yeah. That's a pretty good way to put it, I think. Yeah. Well, this this whole idea of sustaining the brethren seems to really be a great deal about the issue of trust, trusting God, replacing our trust in individuals who are placing their trust in God. But because we're dealing with eternal salvation, this this trust is not an easy issue for a lot of people, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. So how then do you, in your article, make recommendations on how people are to kind of navigate this issue moving forward? Yeah. Okay. That's such a great question. I I look at it this way, and it's really the reason I wrote the paper. What I had in mind was to identify the kinds of considerations people should take into account in deciding what it means to follow the brethren. What, What are all the things I should consider in deciding that? It's not one thing. It's not two things. I actually identified 13 different concepts, I would say that should be taken into account as an individual thinks about what it means to follow the brethren and and how we should do that in our lives. And so rather than uh, write an article where where I was saying, here's how you do it, my my interest was in writing an article saying, look, here seem to me to be the, the major things to consider in everyone deciding how they do it. And then, and then everybody's free uh, to examine that on their own, to weigh those factors and, and to feel what the Spirit directs. Now, look, this might be too personal, but I, I don't think I can fail to say it. I, uh, you know, the first couple of items in that list, one is to recognize the difference between God's knowledge and ours. And the second was uh, to have a testimony of the brethren in general, that they truly are the brethren and are called of the Lord. And I just think that's critical. It's a gift. It's a promise. Anyone can have it. But there's a price I know that has to be paid for it. And all I know is I wish with all my heart that I could give what I know to other people, my testimony of the brethren. Unfortunately, spiritual things don't work that way. We, we can't give to others um, what we know. But, but it's, uh, it's still the fundamental core of the answer. Knowing by the Spirit that the brethren are the brethren the Lord loves them, sustains them, he guides them. That's all true. Now, if I didn't know that, if I didn't know that, then I would be left thinking, well, they might be wise men, and so I should pay attention to them. But beyond that, not 
so much. I mean, that's all I pay attention to them. But if the spirit, you know, in a, in a powerful way uh, settles in our hearts that these brethren really are called by him, sustained by him, loved by him, and guided by him, everything else falls into place. And, and then, you know, I can be content knowing, and it's one of the things I emphasize in the paper, I can be content knowing that the Lord reveals things to them without giving them full explanations on many things. So who am I to say, well, the Lord should give me a full explanation? It's not the way he works with mortals. He expects us to respond to his spirit and, uh, and act in response to that and not demand more than he wants to give. And we truly can live that way when we have that powerful witness of the spirit. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dwayne Boyce is the author of the article and the interpreter that we've been discussing entitled Sustaining the Brethren, as well as the book Even Unto Bloodshed, a Latter-day, Pers- Latter-day Saint Perspective on War. Thank you very much, Dwayne, for coming on and, and talking with us about this, as you put it, vital topic. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.